the superscriptions are inspired. And we'll look at that in just a moment as we study Psalm 133, the blessings of unity. John Phillips gives the illustration of a father who had three quarreling sons. They just bickered all the time and made fun of each other. You know how brothers are uh, wont to do. And he called the, the strongest to him, probably the eldest, and gave him a stick. And he said, break this stick. And the son kind of callously probably rolled his eyes and broke the stick like, you know, big deal. What, what is that about? And then he gave him two sticks. He said, break those. And, of course, this brawny teenage boy broke the two sticks. And the father just kept handing him these slender sticks. And finally, there was a point he couldn't break them. And uh, the father said, son, unity is strength. Cautioning his sons, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Anyone can overthrow you one by one, he was telling them. But if you stand together in unity and your united strength will give you uh, your enemies second thoughts. It is no mistake that the scriptures refer to God's people as sheep. There are various pictures in the scripture, but probably the most apt one the most literal description of us is sheep. And I don't have to enumerate all the analogies there, but I will tell you that sheep are not smart animals. They don't lead. They are apt to wander. They have to have a shepherd. They're vulnerable to their enemies. We could go on down a list of things, and I think you can see the picture. Yes, yes, yes. I need a shepherd. I am prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I uh, am not smart to know. I don't know everything that I need to know. I need a Savior, and I need a shepherd. Well, the short psalm before us deals with true unity, and uh, there's a lot of misunderstandings about that, that teaching of what unity is. The unity of the Spirit here is what he's enumerating for us, a unity that gives strength and on which God pours his blessings. Let's look here together. We'll read the psalm and then go back and make some observations. Behold, that word means see, look. It's an attention-getting word. It's a preacher saying, look, I need to tell you something and you need to hear. Behold, it can be a, a word of wonder, a word of alarming, but whatever follows the word behold is something we should behold. How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. That tells us that brethren can dwell together in what? Disunity or disharmony. But how good it is and how pleasant it is if they dwell together in unity. And then he gives us a vivid illustration of what this is like. It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard that went down to the skirts of his garments, Aaron the high priest, as he's being anointed for service. As the Jew of Hermon, as the Jew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. This short psalm deals with unity, and we see here in these verses a declaration about unity. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. This is what God the Father desires for his children, as I'm sure that father in the simple illustration I gave you desired for his children. Harmony is something we prize. It is a rare commodity, isn't it? In a home, in a work place, or in a church, it's a very precious thing. It is a very pleasant and precious thing 
just as uh, something that we should desire and may not put as high a premium on as we should. Satan hates unity. Do you know why? Because he likes to divide and conquer. That's what he does. And he knows that there are strength in numbers. And he hates such unity because he knows what it can accomplish in the work of the Lord for the kingdom of God. Ecclesiastes 4.12 tells us a threefold cord is not easily broken. One of those cords by themselves might be, but bound together it becomes a rope that guides ships and sails and ties uh, great weights. So a threefold cord is a picture of a church of brethren who are bound together in what some of the old prayers would say in tight cords of love. But Satan hates that kind of unity. And he knows and despises what uh, it means that there's a oneness of heart and mind. He, he tirelessly uh, desires to bring about disharmony among God's people. And he's very uh, good at it, isn't he? And he, there's no home, there's no church, there's no mission organization, no mission station that is exempt from Satan's attempts to bring about unity. And in fact, I would say that in our personal relationships, this is probably one of the most precious and precarious things that we deal with on a daily basis. Proverbs 6.19 lists uh, unity, uh, or disunity as an abomination before the Lord. There, in that list of things that the Lord hates, the Holy Spirit goes back and says, yea, seven are an abomination to him. And he says this, a false witness that speaketh lies, so that's obviously one of the things that causes disunity, and he that soweth discord among the brethren. It, it takes someone of noble character and of purpose to do the opposite, to sow unity, and to instead of repeating matters that would separate very friends, instead of uh, pointing out faults and failures just, just by nature of doing it and critiquing and criticizing and, and that kind of thing, it takes someone who sees things from an eternal perspective and who has a real effort to try to build up instead of to tear down. In fact, the scripture talk speaks much about edifying and admonishing and encouraging one another in one of the very purposes of corporate worship. In his great high priestly prayer just before the cross, Jesus prayed for this unity among his followers, not just his disciples there who would undergo, they would about to undergo severe persecution and they would all die a martyr's death. But he was praying for us as well who would believe on him. It's a very precious thing when you read that prayer to think that in the mind of Christ who had uh, eternity in view and who knew all things from the, end, from the beginning and knew us because he is God. When he's praying this, he's thinking of you and me individually and every group of congregation of believers that would ever come into the very end. He, he's God and he says this, that they all may be one. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Do you see that, that unity among God's people is a cement, a spiritual cement, that is a very forceful and powerful and telling thing to those outside of faith? This unity among God's people. Now, we need to talk about what it is not because when we speak of that, some people get a false idea of what it is. it is. It is the one thing that God says that will convince people that the church has something that the world does not have. It is what the Holy Spirit does 
as he places believers in Christ at conversion, we have certain things in common. Our conversion, we may not have all come to the Lord at the same time, and our, our, our actual experience may be, be di- different, but we all have the testimony of the blind man, don't we? I was blind, but now I see. I was lost, but now I'm saved. I know Christ. My sins have been forgiven. I have passed from death unto life. And that gives us a camaraderie of brother and sisterhood to every other person who has gone through that conversion experience. We have certain things in common. I was reading uh, Dr. John Phillips' testimony where he said when he was in the service, uh, he was stationed in the Holy Land. And uh, on the Lord's Day, he was able to leave the base. This was a young man. And he went and down the street and he found uh, he saw a sign that said a gospel hall and he knew immediately what that meant that was a a brethren church and his background in in england was uh, he was from a brethren church and he said immediately when he entered into that that gospel hall and gave testimony of his background and his link to to the church he was enveloped into a family of believers and he said uh, for lunch, he went home with a, a person of one nationality. He spent the afternoon with some Arab Christians and then some Jewish believers had him over for supper after church. When he got back to the base that night, his fellow soldiers said, where have you been? He said, he, he recounted all that. And they could not believe that he'd had that experience with people from all over the world in just, just one day. But you see that that conversion in belief in Christ is, it brings us into a world that others know not of. And so when he places us in Christ, we automatically have a family, don't we? You may be homeless and may not have another living relative on earth, but in Christ you have a, a family, you have a place of belonging in his church. And it's what outsiders saw in the early church that was one of the most remarkable things about it. They would behold how close and tight-knit they were. And that where, that where one and all, whether rich or poor or bond or free or male or female or Jew or Gentile, they were all accepted and had all things in common. And it was an amazing thing because, as we know even today, social strata and, and racial differences and uh, philosophical differences and political differences uh, uh, pit people from each other. We see it displayed in our nation today, and it's ever repeated on and on and on. But uh, through faith in Christ, it breaks down those walls, doesn't it? But let me tell us that unity is not conformity or just uniformity. It doesn't mean the very same thing. Now, there's some certain key things that we hold dear, but it is not a carbon copy. That's not what unity is. It is not a false joining together with those who don't believe in the authority of the Bible. We speak here, a lot of uh, people in the religious world say, we just need to all get together and, and not have, you know, emphasize our differences and have unity. That's not unity. That's uniformity, but that's not unity. Uh, it's not joining with people who don't believe in the deity of Christ for some religious a purpose. What would that be if they don't believe in the saviorhood of Christ and his authority or the, the literal interpretation of the scriptures? It's not uh, those who joining with those in a, in a fake syrupy uh, ecumenicism of, with, without holding these things dear. It is not uh, a unity brought on by a doctrinal compromise. That's not what the scripture is talking about or organizational efficiency. The church is not an organization. It needs to do things decently in order. We're told to do that. But it is an organism. It is a living 
body of Christ. And so it's very different from the business world or any other thing on earth. There's nothing you can compare it to that would meet the, the exact definition of what the New Testament church is. It's, it's a symbol for this present age is not business, but a body, a living body carrying out the purpose of God on earth. The early church shared and believed the apostles' doctrine, didn't they? Those key elements, one faith, one baptism, one hope, one calling, one. Not various, however you want to look at it, things. Not several ways to get to heaven. One. And that, that oneness and exactness is emphasized. And that so true biblical unity must be based on those things. Uh, or there's, is, there's no unity. It's a disunity. They shared and taught the apostles' doctrine, which was... Our Lord told the apostles, now, I have many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. And I'm paraphrasing here. But he, when he, the Holy Spirit, has come, the Spirit of truth, he will bring what? All things to mind that I've taught you. And he was referring to at that time when the Holy Spirit would move those men to pen the scriptures that would become the New Testament uh, books and that's the apostles' doctrine. It's everything that Jesus taught them to teach the church. And in fact, his last command is to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. We're to baptize those who make a profession of faith. We're to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But we don't stop there, do we? What, are we, what is our everlasting task? Teaching them what? To observe whatever they want to? Some of the things? No. All the things that I've instructed you, everything from Genesis to Revelation, that's the apostles' doctrine. And so they continued in the apostles' doctrine, corporate worship for prayer, uh, the ordinances of believers' baptism and the Lord's Supper. They continued steadfastly in these things. They ceased not. We see those, those words, those verbs throughout the, the New Testament record. And they ceased not. And they continued steadfastly in these things and in obeying our Lord's command to occupy, to preach the gospel to every creature and to teach and instruct them to be disciples, to make disciples of them. Notice the psalmist's praise in Psalm 133 of how good it is. He puts a high estimate on this unity, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Now notice this are brethren. What fellowship hath light with darkness? or Christ with Belial. That's not unity because what he's talking about here is something that only brethren can, can enjoy. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody will see eye to eye and dot every I and cross every T exactly the same. But there are these commonalities. This is the word of God, the deity of Christ, these things that we hold dear. And the brethren are those who've been regenerated, who've had a conversion experience. They've been placed in the body of Christ. How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And no doubt, because it is a rarity on earth <laughs> to see that kind of unity. Let's face it, where do you see it? We can talk about it, but uh, it's a very rare and fragrant thing. And when something's rare, it's a very costly thing. Much effort and expense has gone to for it to be there. We go back to the first brothers and the first family. Let's talk about sibling rivalry and all these tags that people put on things. Boy, that's, that's a classic picture of it. Cain and Abel. Man's first sin, Adam's sins, and separated him from God. But the second sin separated man from man. 
And Abel's blood shed by his jealous and angry brother Cain put an end to the brotherhood of man. We hear a lot of people talk about the brotherhood of man and the fatherhood of God. God is the father of all people on earth, and we're all brothers and sisters. That sounds good, but that is not what the scripture teaches. No one can force brotherhood. You can't legislate it. You can't say these races get along or these differences are gone. You can, you can pass laws, and you can, I'm not saying that these things shouldn't be, have justice and rightness and that kind of thing, but you cannot force brotherhood. You can't force association from the heart. You can't force uh, true unity, enforce true unity. So what are we speaking of here? You can found the United Nations. The United Nations was found under the noble uh, thoughts that this, this organization, uh, this meeting of the minds of all the nations on earth would, would be such that no wars would ever, there would be no need for wars because we could just sit and have a, have a conversation about everything and everything would be worked out. Well, there's not been a day of peace on earth since the United Nations was founded. It's somewhat hypocritical, isn't it? We have a lavish building, people from all over the world who come at great expense and great uh, living expenses there in, in, in New York. And what, what of it? We, 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 nothing is accomplished but platitudes and, and some statements made from time to time. But daily people are being killed all over the earth uh, under the guise of, of the United Nations watchful eye. And, and so you can have all kinds of movements and clubs and new elections and new administrations, but only a divine work in the heart of man by the Spirit of God can cause this unity that the Bible is talking about here. People talk about the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man, but the Bible makes it clear that God is not the father of all. Make no mistake about it. He is the creator of all. It is he that hath made us and not we ourselves. But he is the father of only of those who have been born again by faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've been made joint heirs with him. And that's how we become a child of God. And he becomes our father. And so we can come to him and cry, Abba, Father, our Father, which art in heaven. We come to you in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're told to boldly come, those who can come to the throne of grace because the door, has, the middle veil has been split in two at the work of Christ at Calvary when he cried, it is finished, and only on those grounds and because of faith in him do we have the right to come. So we see here in Psalm 133 this blessed uh, description of harmony and unity among God's people. But even then, even with a work of regeneration, that miraculous work of conversion among God's people by a supernatural work of the Spirit, it has to be prized, it doesn't. It has to be practiced. It has to be prayed for. We have to obey uh, the, the precepts given to us in the Scripture, Matthew 18 and the other ways of dealing with uh, disagreements. The, the, the Lord has given the pattern and the plan, but they have to be monitored. It has to be put into practice, or even among God's people, this will not be. This common link of salvation in Christ, though, immediately does make us brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, the Apostle Paul gives us the pattern of how things should function in the church. Treat the older men as your father, and your older, the older women as your mothers, and the younger men as your brothers, and the younger women as your sisters. All of that is a pattern of how, if we would obey that, that would help in this precious unity among God's people. 
And so this, this common link of salvation makes us brothers and sisters with people all over the world. Think about it. You can go to a church in another land and uh, meet with God's people and give testimony of your saving faith and immediately have a family and have things in common. That's what this is talking about, the common link of prayer and the salvation and the preciousness of God's word. No matter what our background is, I've had that privilege. I've preached in humble churches in Haiti. I've preached in, in churches in England and in Canada and other places and have immediately found a, a congregation of people and, and brothers and sisters in Christ who've helped me, enable me to get from point A to point B, who've helped me with my luggage and my passport, all kinds of things that I, I was in a strange place and sometimes couldn't speak the language and uh, God's people have been there. Well, the, the psalm before us, as you notice there, is a song of degrees or a song, uh, a, a song of degrees, and it bears David's name. And so we ought to look at every detail as we're studying the scriptures. That song of degrees, this is appropriate because it was David who united the tribes. When David came king, the tribes were uh, uh, divided, distrusting of one another, very territorial. He found them a dozen divided, fighting groups of people, uh, common bloodline they were all the same father abraham in that regard the same blood but they were anything but unified open to the attacks of their enemies and they were suspicious of one another all the things that unity is not he brought the 12 tribes of israel together and he unified them and gave them cohesion in a centralized kingdom that was centralized in jerusalem he brought the ark there. He made, planned and made provision for his son Solomon to build the, the glorious temple for Jehovah. All of this was under the direction of God and yet was for the cohesion of God's people, the bringing together of God's people around common things, centralized focus. And uh, brought, the temple became a symbol of, the national, uh, of their spiritual and their national unity. It's as if those who are members of congregations of believers all across the world, we meet regularly, and it becomes a centralized focus of cohesion as we share the things of God, as we share the table of our Lord, as we share the ordinances of the church, as we worship together and bear one another's burdens and, and help one another. And if we did not have this centralized uh, place to come and, and at appointed times, we would be divided and, and, and would not have the cohesion that God wants us to have. So do you see the design of God in it all, of how he designed his church to, to uh, foster this unity that he, we are so highly prized here? David knew that real unity for the nation had to be rooted and centered in the common faith of the living God and in accordance to God's word. And uh, that's what he set about to do. Years later, as you study the Kings and the Chronicles, that you remember that First, Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles are like the Gospels; they repeat the history in various ways. So you see a lot of repetition through there. But when you read through the Kings and the Chronicles, you see the horrible picture of how all this is dissolved, all that David worked for, all that that God intended for His people to be. This unity was absolutely ruined by King Jeroboam. The Bible says of Jeroboam, this is what the Holy Spirit records of him, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. Can you imagine if that was on your epitaph? This is the man who made Israel to sin. 
Not this is the man who brought Israel together. This was the king, we could elaborate here, who knew better, should have known better, but he caused his nation to sin. Oh, may that never be said about any of us. Can you imagine the years, someone say, Pastor Chris Lamb, who calls the church to sin. What a horrible thing. That, that absolutely brings a horror in our hearts and minds. But that was what was said of Jeroboam. Uh, it was Jeroboam who led the northern tribes to revolt openly. It was Jeroboam who used this disharmony to bring about selfish goals that he had. He created, invented a parallel religion to Judaism with its own temple, with its own uh, place of worship, based on the calf worship of Jehovah, which we know where that came from, all the way back to Egypt and what the Israelites did when they first came out of bondage. You remember when Moses came down off the mountain, they'd made a golden calf. Jeroboam resurrected all of that. He, he changed uh, the, the God-ordained feast days and just did it the way he wanted to. And he chose commoners to, to the priesthood, and which God had ordained the priesthood, who should serve as priest. Jeroboam ignored all. He just, it was like Henry VIII when the Catholic Church wouldn't let him divorce. He just said, okay, I'll create my own church and I'll be the head of it. And that's what Jeroboam did, okay? I, don't, y'all won't, I can't do exactly what the Scripture says. I'll, I'll do, my, do it my own way. It'll parallel. It'll have a lot of similarities, and God ought to be pleased with it. It was nothing short of Cain's worship. We'll worship. I'll do it my way. And so uh, he, he changed these. He created a rival kingdom which divided God's people, everything but unity. King Hezekiah saw the importance when he came to the throne and he was collecting these hymns for the hymn book. He saw the importance and the value of this forgotten psalm of David. It's not a long song, isn't it? We have choruses, we have short little hymns, and this is one of those, but oh my, what it says. He incorporated it into his songs of degrees, that portion of the hymn book. Israel had paid dearly for its apostasies. By the time you get to Hezekiah, oh, the scars of those apostasies are obvious. And so he let the remnant of the various tribes come and worship in Jerusalem. Let them be reconciled to God. This was a time of reconciliation. Let the old divisions be healed. Let the people of God from the north and south unite with heart and voice in true unity around the word of God. I had the privilege of knowing some of the founding charter members of our church here at Glen Iris. And uh, some of you older members will remember Miss Dumichelle and Miss Edwards and Miss Schlichter and some of those dear Pop uh, Griffin and his wife. Dear, dear saints of God. And amazingly, and I've shared with you just time, from time to time of the story that uh, the church was the 11th Avenue, or 7th, I think 11th Avenue Baptist Church, and they split. And either I spoke with our lately past deacon, Bobby Somerville, who joined the church as a teenager. The church had just already split, and the Glen Iris Park was meeting in a house, uh, on 11th place that is still there on the corner right across from the school. The house with tall pillars there. We have a picture of it in our archives with the church sign out in front of it. And uh, he said he saw the pastor as he was putting up the sign as a little boy. And he came by and the pastor invited him to church. And that's how he, he and his family came to, to be. They just moved here from Norwood. Well, I would talk with those ladies and, and my, neither my predecessor, Brother Grand, or any of them 
could ever get them to say what the split was about. I don't know if it was that they didn't remember. I do know that Mrs. Edwards, one of the precious ladies who left her home to the church to help our church become uh, out of debt. At that time, we were praying that we would not have any indebtedness and we'd sold bonds to build the buildings across the way. And her gift and legacy was equipped us to be able to do that. But Brother Somerville told me that Miss Edwards said she was a part of that and it was so horrible and grievous she never wanted to speak of it, and they never did. And so the two congregations functioned parallel, one just a few blocks away, one here for several years until finally one of the pastors, and I'm not sure which, gave an olive leaf to the other congregation and said, why? They're both their pastors, were elderly, and they were going to have to make some changes and along in the 1940s, they said, why don't we, this was in the 20s, I think, when all that happened, uh, why don't we get back together? Well, why, why maybe, the, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, reading between the lines, we don't even know why we divided, and we need each other, and we have the same, we're from the same congregation, why we're the, the same people, why should we be divided? And, uh, you know, you have to think about those men and their foresight and the deacons of both congregations who worked that out. Very rare. You hear splits among God's people all the time. But these two churches came together and reconciled. I've always thought about what that first service was like after the two churches came back together. And the first Lord's Supper they had uh, as they came back together. They united their forces and bought this little slender piece of property here, just the property where this building is. Nothing on that side, nothing on that side. That's why the church is built the way it is, to the property line. There's no side aisles. They had maximized the space they had, and uh, this is what it, just a single little sliver of property here. And uh, built this building and uh, raised the money for it, and God has blessed, I think, uh, not only the dedication of God's people to doctrinal purity, but that kind of reconciliation and unity. And we're the recipients of that today. What if they hadn't? What if they said, well, just good enough for them. Their, their pastor can die and their church can die out for all I care. People feel that way. You know that? You've seen it. And what, what probably would have happened, both groups would have fizzled out and there'd been no gospel witness on this corner all these years as I saw the hundreds come through on Tuesday night and all of them presented with a gospel witness I thought back to little white haired ladies like Miss Alma Edwards and Miss Ethel Michelle and Miss Mabel Schlichter and the Somerville family and mom and pop Griffin I wish you could have known them this precious precious couple and so many others who with blood, sweat, and tears. Do you know that a group of those ladies met every week downstairs in the church kitchen and prayed for the conversion of Tom Anderson, who was a notorious, by his own testimony, uh, well, we'll just leave it at that. He needed to be saved. And they met, and he said by his own testimony, he came upon them. He, he was coming through the basement, and he, he came upon them and heard those women and Mom Griffin was leading the prayer meeting. Oh, Lord, save Tom Anderson. And just a little while after that, the preacher came and called on him over here. And he came to saving faith in Christ. Well, we just share a little bit of that history because to, to let us know that, that the unity of the brethren is something that has to be prized by every generation. 
that doesn't mean there's not going to be problems or disagreements or hurt feelings or anything else that might could cause any given day there could be things that could cause division. But we have the Holy Spirit, do we not? And the, the work of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit to help us, the resources of the Holy Spirit to help us to do the right thing and always be thinking, what about the next generation? What about those who are going to follow us? What is it that we're going to leave them? We hope not only doctrinal purity and a strong stand, but of godly, brotherly love and Christian unity. Well, we see in verses 2 and 3 a description of this unity. And David gives two pictures of it. First of one is a spiritual one, and then one is secular. One having to do with the priest and the other having to do with the pasture. And we look at that picture there. In verse 2, it is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down the beard, upon the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garments. Now, we can see this picture in that deliberate, purposeful anointing of Aaron's sons and Israel's high priest. This was by the Lord. Remember, he's the one that appointed the priesthood and whose family it would be. And that was the open manifestation of it. They openly dedicated their uh, priest uh, to the Lord. And, of course, the priesthood ended with the work of Christ. It is finished. There is now one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But, and yet still there, there are offices and there are precious places of service in the church that we uh, even adhere to even today. And then we think of the manufacturing of that ointment. Do you know the ointment that he's describing here is a very spe- it wasn't just something they got out of the somewhere. <laughs> oh, this was a specific ointment that was made according to the recipe of God from heaven in heaven that was given uh, to Moses down on earth. If you look in Exodus chapter 30 and verse 22, you'll read that moreover the Lord spake unto Moses saying, "Take thou also unto the principal spices of pure myrrh, 500 shekels, and a sweet cinnamon, half so much, and even 250 shekels, and of sweet calamus, 250 shekels, and of cassia, 500 shekels, after the shekel of the sanctuary, and of, of oil, olive, and hen. And thou shalt make it an oil of holy ointment, an ointment compound after the art of the apothecary, It shall be an holy anointing oil. That's what he's talking about here. The oil that runs down upon Aaron. Now, when we we dedicate our ministers and preachers and deacons and elders today, we use the symbol in the Holy Spirit uh, in the New Testament of laying on of hands, as the scripture tells us. But can you imagine having oil poured over your head and down your face and down your garments as they did in, in the Old Testament? The psalmist himself, the, the inspired writer here, was an anointed man, wasn't he? Remember when Samuel found David in the pasture tending his father's sheep, and he anointed him then and there as the king of Israel, even though there was an official anointing years and years later. And so he dwells on this manifestation, this public picture of the ointment in the anointing of Aaron, Israel's first high priest. David has five things to say about it. First of all, it was poured upon Aaron's head, and which speaks of the glory of his position. 
it speaks of Christ's majesty. The head of our church is not a man. It is Christ, the Son of God. He is the head of the church. May he ever be the head. There's no earthly head. There's no man, no pope that's the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. And this speaks of Christ's majesty. Christ is head of his church. We have an anointed head in heaven who directs his affairs on earth. Nothing can change or alter that. Not denominational votes or laws or edicts. Christ is head of the church and he said, I will build my church. It is his church. May we never forget that. These things are loaned to us. We're just here for this time superintending and stewarding the manifold riches of God for a time. But Christ is our head and he is building his church. It is not ours. We're privileged to be a part of it. But nothing can change or alter that. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. There will be a believing remnant even at the moment of uh, the very darkest day on earth. We'll never have to worry about Christ's church being extinct. Persecution cannot kill it. The wrath of man, the very, very wrath of hell itself cannot change the church of Christ. No failure on the part of any member of the body can ever affect or change our glorious head. He does not divorce us. He, in fact, he has pledged himself to never leave us nor forsake us. So, so tightly cemented are we to him. His majesty. May we never forget when we gather together the majesty of our Savior. Crown him with many crowns. King of kings and Lord of lords. Reigning in majesty and glory supreme. It is he that we're worshiping today. His fragrance fills all of heaven. Think of the fragrance of our Lord. We mentioned here these fragrant cinnamon and myrrh and calamus as it was blended together for the holy anointing oil. But think of the beauty of our Savior. And I think of that psalm, may the beauty of the Lord be upon us and upon our work. That fragrance of Christ, when people meet us, they ought to see Christ. They ought to sense Christ. May we be the hands of Christ and the feet of Christ and show the love of Christ and the spirit of Christ in all that we do. But notice secondly here in Psalm 133 that the ointment not only went over his head, it went down over Aaron's beard. This speaks of Christ's humanity. He was a true man, wasn't he? He had a, a literal human body. He was God's man. He, there was a glorious fragrance about him. He was holy and undefiled and separate from sinners. All that, that we are, he was the opposite of in his perfections. Kind and forgiving and generous. And he was never unmanly or weak. His silence was not weakness. It was strength under control. Thou hast said. He answered his his uh, questioners, and he did declare that I, no man takes my life. I lay it down, and I will take it up again. What strength, what power. Who can do that? Who can say that? Never anything less than a perfect man. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit so that everywhere he went, it was sensed and seen. And there was nothing in his physical, uh, looking upon him physically to say that he's God, but when people came around him, they could perceive the difference. They knew there was something. Never a man spake like this man. No, no one could do the things that he do, did unless God was with him. 
Strong men. Think about our Lord's influence. Strong men, burly men like Peter and John and James lay down their nets at his command. Walked away from their businesses when he said, come, follow me. That's no mealy-mouth, effeminate picture that you see in the old master paintings of Christ. It's delicate, and, and, and you wonder how anybody would follow some of the pictures you see of Christ. When he looked at Peter and said, come, follow me. And he said to Matthew, who is making money hand over fists, <laughs> leave your receipt of custom and come follow me. Who would do that without the authority of heaven behind that call? Followed him instantly, unquestioningly, even unto death. People were drawn to him. Little children came to him. They, they climbed on, on his knees and came for blessing. The, the ointment ran over Aaron's head and his beard, and then the ointment ran down on Aaron's garments. Now, you know the high priest was uh, gar- clothed in a very peculiar way. The Holy Spirit describes for us, and I'm sure you've seen some artist renderings of what those garments look like. Every part of it uh, depicting uh, uh, some biblical meaning. The 12 tribes of Israel, the holiness of God, uh, the the wisdom of God. Every part of the, the garment spoke of God's attributes and his love of Israel. But the ointment ran down, this oil ran down on his garments. And Aaron's garments were the garments of a ministering priest. And so this speaks of ministry. The Lord Jesus came, he said, not to be ministered unto, but to minister. And he, to give his life a ransom for many. He had a, a Calvary ministry. Whether it was healing the lame or feeding the thousands, his eye was toward Calvary. And he continuously moved toward that end. The ointment then ran down on the skirts of Aaron's garments. And this speaks of our Lord's mercy. His grace reaches down to the ground. Remember the woman who said, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, his mercy. Oh, the mercy of our Savior who looked at people with the eyes of mercy to the believing thief at his his side at Calvary. Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. What mercy. The skirts. His, his down-to-earth ministry. He was among his people and is among his people. And in fact, he said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Not just a remote, distant ministry in heaven. Did he not tell us where two or three are gathered in my name? There, there I am in the midst of them. A ministry that is not in some denominational hierarchy somewhere, but a ministry that reaches to us where we are down here on earth. He is a great high priest who is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. But notice also the ointment was poured on Aaron. It ran down Aaron's beard. That speaks of Christ in his members. And although Aaron was not Christ... During Christ's absence in his own lifetime, Aaron represented Christ. He was a picture of Christ. He stood for Christ. He reminded the people that there needed to be a mediator between God and man. They couldn't just come before the Lord. Their sin separated them. Wherever there was a priest, that reminded the people that a sacrifice had to be made and your sins have separated between you and your God. He was an, his was an anointed ministry. The fragrance of that wondrous ointment would cling to him. That is what people sensed when they came into his presence. 
was something different about him. His power, his might, his mercy, his grace. And I want us to know as we close today that we are Christ's representatives on earth here to carry with us some of his loveliness. And our prayer ought to be the psalmist's prayer in Psalm 90. Oh, may the beauty of the Lord be upon us. May he establish the work of our hands and and all that we do, we do as unto the Lord. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious Notice these words, the precious ointment, the Holy Spirit's anointing in our worship and our meeting together. Oh, it is a precious thing, isn't it? No price tag can be put upon it. It is not something that can be conjured up. No pastor or song leader can bring this ointment, this, this anointing. Only the Holy Spirit can give his blessing. And it is precious It is like the precious ointment upon the head that ran down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard that went down to the skirts of his garments, as the dew of Hermon, as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. May the Lord bless his people today. Our gracious Heavenly Father, oh, we pray for this precious unity, this anointing of the Holy Spirit as we worship you today. Take your word and bless every heart and teach us and feed us, we pray. In Jesus' precious name.